0: Lessons in Tanya, the Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky, Tanya's text, elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're on page
1: 442, chapter 34 and he's discussing the level of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, that the Torah refers to them as the chariots. They were God's chariots. Just like a chariot is basically egoless, a chariot is just like a putty in the hands of the rider. Wherever the rider wants to go, the chariot goes. A chariot has no agenda of its own completely nullified before its rider. So, too, the patriarchs and the matriarchs were egoless. They were, they were completely God-centered. There was no sense of ego, of I, of being separate, disconnected from God. They experienced godliness. Their whole being was, was godly. That is the definition of holiness. The definition of holiness is where there is no ego, when there is a sense of, of godliness. Because ego interferes. Ego gets in the way. Ego creates like static. And it obstructs our sense of, of godliness and sense of connection. And he says that the patriarchs were chariots 24-7. Every moment of their lives, every with every fiber of their being, every bone in their body, they were completely nullified before God. When they ate, when they drank, when they slept, whatever they did, they were constantly permeated with a sense of godliness. And there was no compartmentalization. It was consistent throughout their lives, 24 7. For them, it wasn't religion. God to them was not something, religion is compartmentalized one day a week, certain places, certain experiences in your life, but you leave it out of the office has nothing to do with your career. But the, for the patriarchs and the matriarchs, there was no compartmentalization. 24-7, they were constantly connected. And on a, an experiential level, they felt that they experienced godliness, they breathed godliness. That was their reality. This was, this was reality to them. There was no other reality to them.
0: It is known that, quote, the patriarchs constitute the divine chariot, end quote. Throughout their lives, they did not cease, even momentarily, from binding their mind and soul to the master of the universe with the aforementioned absolute surrender to his unity, i.e., their constant awareness of God's unity led them to be continuously in a state of self-nullification before God. And as explained more fully in chapter 23, this self-nullification is what is meant by the term chariot a vehicle submissive to the will of its pilot.
1: So as he explained earlier, the idea of the unity of God is not only that there's only one God and not two gods, but the idea of unity of God means only one reality, only one existence. Only God exists, nothing else exists. So if there's ego, that, it's a, that is a contradiction to the unity of God. The moment there's an I, it's already a contradiction to the unity of God. Because God is absolute reality there's no other reality but god no other existence it's not like god is up there or something other other otherworldly god is god is our reality there is no other reality and we are being recreated each and every moment and we're nothing other than the divine energy but we don't sense that divine process the patriarchs and the matriarchs, they sense that divine process. They sense how that dynamic process, how we are constantly being recreated each and every moment. And therefore there, there, there is no ego, there is no separation, there is no sense of ego, sense of I. They constantly experience godliness, the reality of godliness. That was their reality. It's hard for us to relate to it, because it's not, that's not the way we experience reality. We have a very healthy sense of I, very prominent ego. But for them, this was, this was their reality, which is why Judaism is deeper than religion, and it's why we inherit our Jewish soul from the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Religion you don't inherit. The Christians today are not the biological children of the original Christians. But every Jew every one of us is a biological child of Abraham Isaac and Jacob Sarah, Rebecca Rachel and Leah because to them it wasn't religion it was their their core their essence their very being it transformed their whole being godliness was woven into the fabric of their being was inside of them outside of them was all around God is reality there is no other reality and they felt it and they experienced it and therefore we inherit that sense that faith that Jewish soul we inherit Automatically, till the end of time. Anyone who's born to a Jewish mother, to the end of time, will, will forever be Jewish. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Because they were, they were the patriarchs, they were the matriarchs, they were the chariots to God. This is our foundation. This is our root, our source. Okay.
0: After them came all the prophets, who similarly nullified themselves, before God's unity in varying degrees each according to the level of his soul and his understanding.
1: So again, what is the definition of a prophet? A navi in Hebrew comes from the word a seer, someone who sees. Someone who sees the divine energy. If we were to see the divine energy, as the modern physicist tells us, this table is is all energy, pure energy. It's 99.9% empty. It's, it's, It's a swirling atoms. The atom is empty. There's nothing there. It's 99.9% empty. And yet, this gives us this sense of solidity. But the truth is, the substance of this table and you and I and everything that exists is really really the divine energy. So imagine if we were able to see. Instead of seeing the end result, we see the table. It appears to us very solid, very rigid, inert, dead. If we were to see that the table is vibrant and alive and we would see the divine process constantly creating, then we would also be egoless. We would be tzaddikim. We would all be saints. So we wouldn't even be tempted to sin. If you were a Navi, if you saw the divine energy and you saw godliness and you saw the infinite creative process, the miraculous process of creation ongoing, then you wouldn't even be tempted to sin. The world would have no attraction to you. Materialism, external. Would have no no attraction. To you. The only thing that would, the only reality that would mean anything to you would be the godly reality. That's reality. To you. So the neviim, the prophets, who are righteous, who are tzaddikim, they, they are godly beings. They're eagles. They're almost like qualitatively different than, than the rest of us. It's a different type of being. You know, we throw the the term around very loosely. Oh, a tzadik, a Jew comes to synagogue three times a day, he gives charity, a nice person. What's the connection between that and a the tzaddik? There's no connection. That person is so far from a tzaddik, there's no relation. A tzaddik is not just be- behavioral, a person is behaving a certain way. A tzaddik is almost a different type of being. A person who's ego's. A person who wasn't born with the same veil that, that we were born with. They're able to see. Their soul is able to see. And they see the truth and they see the reality. They see the divine reality. They see how the world is pulsating with divine energy. And that the substance of everything that exists is godly and divine. That is a Navi. That is a prophet. Within the prophets, you have different levels. Everyone according to the level. There were greater prophets like Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets. Ezekiel there were 1,200,000 prophets the Talmud tells us from during the era of prophecy the first thousand years of Jewish history till the beginning of the second temple there were 1,200,000 prophets so every prophet is different of course the, the prophets that were recorded for posterity only a handful of prophets and they are of course on a much greater level so everyone according to their level but what they all share in common is that they all had a sense of Godliness they experienced godliness, they felt it. It was a living reality for them. The prophet lived godliness, he felt it. Most prophets were overwhelmed by the experience. When the prophecy, when they experienced prophecy, they would go into like a trance or in a sleep, or they would like fall asleep, or they would because it was like an otherworldly experience. It wasn't an, an, an ordinary experience because it. it them beyond their ego beyond their ordinary human consciousness and they felt it they felt it was a divine experience a divine event the experience of prophecy was a divine event so all of them shared this experience that they sensed goddess it was a living breathing reality continue
0: the rank of our teacher moses peace be upon him surpassed them all of him our sages said quote the shekhinah the divine presence spoke out of Moses' throat, end quote. His was such a total surrender to godliness that the very words he uttered were divine speech. The relation of Moses' throat to divine speech was that of one's throat to his own speech.
1: As the Torah says, that there was never a prophet like Moshe, and there never will be a prophet like Moshe. Moshe is the greatest, Moses is the greatest prophet that ever lived, and is the greatest prophet that ever will live. Mashiach will be a great prophet, almost like Moshe, but not quite. In prophecy, there's no one who will ever be as great as Moshe. Moshe is the one who gave us the Torah. He's the one who went to heaven and back three times. We all go to heaven, but no one comes back. Moshe went to heaven and back three times. So there was never an experience like Revelation at Sinai, and there never will be another Mount Sinai. Mashiach will come, there's not going to be a new Mount Sinai, a new Torah. Mashiach will implement the Torah that was given by Moshe at Sinai. So Moshe is unique in prophecy. As the Torah says, that God spoke to Moshe like like one person speaks to the other person face to face. I spoke to Moshe face to face. Because most prophets, when they experience prophecy, they went into like a a trance-like state of mind. But Moshe spoke to God like, like, like you and I speak. Because Moshe was able to handle, was able to absorb Godliness. Moshe didn't; ha- it wasn't to him. It wasn't some otherworldly experience. To him, it was the most natural thing in the world. So his whole being was so godly. Moshe is the only one. His face physically radiated. He had to wear a mask. We don't find anyone in Jewish history, anyone in human history, that had to wear a mask. So that's where the. Um, Michelangelo because he didn't understand the Torah (laughs) right the rays the horns that's where the horns come from the Torah says that his face face radiated when he came down the mountain for the third time Yom Kippur his face radiated and he had to put on a mask so the Torah uses the word karne which sometimes can mean horns and that's why everyone knows why Jews wear yarmulkes right to cover up the horns but it has nothing to do with horns it's, it's the rays, Moshe's face uh, radiated his physical face so much so that the Jews couldn't even look at him he had, he had to wear a mask when he taught Torah he would remove his mask and the rest of the time he had to wear his mask so Moshe was a transformed his being was natural so much so that he was able to be in heaven and his nature became like a nature of angels 40 days, 40 nights They didn't have to eat, they didn't have to drink, they didn't have to sleep for 40 days and 40 nights. His nature was transformed. With his body, his physical body, his nature was transformed into the nature of of an angel. So Moshe was unique, even amongst the prophets, that his whole being was godly. And that was the most natural to him. Because all the other prophets, they experienced the divine, but while they were experiencing it, they experienced it as something otherworldly. And even if it made sense to them, and they were able to internalize it, but still they had a sense that they were experiencing something otherworldly. To Moshe, this was the most natural thing in the world. This became his identity. This became his nature. And therefore, it was, it was the most natural thing. And we all could relate to it, that there are times, there are when we have a godly experience, but we experience it as something otherworldly is happening in our lives. This is not ordinary. It's completely, entirely from a different realm. Then you have times where, yes, you experience a godly experience, and you experience it as being otherworldly, but you can internalize it. You can integrate it. It makes sense to you. But you sense that you're internalizing something that is otherworldly but then the ultimate level is when your natural mind starts naturally understanding godliness when you start relating to godliness in the most natural way when your whole being has become transformed that this becomes your very nature that your mind starts thinking along godly lines when you start thinking like god's mind that's the ultimate level and that's what happens through studying of Torah. Moshe was the receiver of the Torah. Moshe received the Torah. When you study Torah, your mind starts thinking like God's mind, because the Torah is God's mind. So the masters of the Torah, the true masters of the Torah, their minds became one with God's mind. They were able to see and to understand reality and to understand this world from the inside out, from God's point of view. And that's why the true masters of the Torah were also the greatest masters of all the sciences, all the wisdoms of the world. They knew math and science and, and, and physics and astronomy. How did they master that as a result of mastering the Torah? Because when you master the Torah, you're mastering God's mind. So you know how God, the creator, you know how he thinks, you know how he approaches things. So you can figure out how God created the planets, and you can figure out how God created the galaxies and the universe and the stars. Because once you master God's way of thinking And you become one Talking about the true masters of the Torah And you become one with God's mind Then naturally you start thinking like God And that's why you also go to the tzaddik You go to the master of the Torah For guidance in life Because his mind has become In a sense has become one with the mind of God And therefore he knows how to approach things From God's point of view In any subject, people would ask the Rebbe, but any subject under the sun. Because you know when you speak to a master like the Rebbe, the Moses of our generation, he's going to give you the divine approach, the Torah's approach, God's approach. Because to him, this is the most natural thing. Because his mind has become totally one. He has absorbed, completely unified with God's mind by studying and mastering the entire Torah. So Moshe, who was the ultimate prophet, who received the Torah, became so unified with God that even when he spoke, it was his voice, but really it was God speaking through his throat. It's a beautiful story the third Labavitcher Rebbe. He once said a Hasidic discourse, you know, the Rebbe, all the Rebbe's would say a Hasidic discourse. And it was like a very divine event, you know. I still remember the Rebbe would say a Hasidic discourse, he'd close his eyes, he would sing a song, and the Rebbe would, everyone would stand up and rise, because it's like receiving the Torah, like fresh Torah coming from Sinai. And the Rebbe would close his eyes, and he would hold a handkerchief under the table just to keep him grounded in this world in deep concentration and he would sweat when he said the mimer had a very powerful air conditioning but it wouldn't help because he was in a different world and um, so this was an experience so all the Rebbe's, Lubavitcher Rebbe's would say a Hasidic Discourse and one time the third Lubavitcher if is saying a Hasidic Discourse there was an argument amongst the Hasidim how to interpret the Hasidic discourse. And uh, one of the greatest Hasidim, who's was very famous, his name was Rabbi Hillel Paracher. The, the, the Rebbe said about him that he himself was a half a Rebbe. He was a very special, special Hasid. And he argued with the Tzemach Tzedek's children how to interpret the Hasidic discourse. And this argument got back to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe sided with his children. The direct interpretation is the way my children are interpreting. When it got back to Rabbi Hillel Parashir, he said, with all due respect, when the Rebbe says the Hasidic discourse, then God is speaking through his throat. <laughs> like Moshe, says God spoke through his throat. God is speaking through his throat. It's Torah. Every word, every letter it's like divine, directly divine. After he finishes the Hasidic discourse, when it comes to interpreting, he has his interpretation I have my interpretation I think this is the correct interpretation <laughs> the other Hasidim re- replied someone who God speaks through his throat you can probably rely on his, ter- in, <laughs> his interpretation as well <laughs> he probably has a better understanding a better insight but there is that moment of transmission there is that moment it was actually once a story with the Rebbe someone stopped him in the street and he needed advice it wasn't the usual time when people would go into a private audience Yechides, to get advice from the Rebbe and the Rebbe answered him he says the one who you're looking for now is not here now and he refused to answer so in other words the Rebbe is sitting in this room and the that moment it's divine inspiration God is speaking through his voice every word that comes out of his mouth is divine you know, he's, he would answer life and death questions. He would answer issues, you know, so with authority because God was speaking through him. So whatever he said was a hundred percent, a thousand percent authentic. But here he caught in the middle of the street. In the middle, he says, right now, who you're looking for is not here right now. I can't answer you. So there is a state where the Shekhinah, you're so one with God at that moment. We're talking of Moses, who's so connected and so unified with God, his voice is the voice of God. God is speaking through His voice. His natural voice is, that's the voice of God. So even though He's a human being, but God is speaking through His voice because He's the ultimate tzaddik, the ultimate prophet. And this is one of the principles of Jewish faith, that God speaks through to, uh, to prophets. Why is this a principle of Jewish faith? Why is it so essential to believe that God speaks through prophets? Because this is one of the key differences between Judaism and Christianity. In Christianity, to make a thousand separations, God doesn't speak to human beings. But it's an essential belief in Judaism that God speaks to human beings, a flesh and blood born to mothers and fathers, human beings. That a human being could become unified with God that a human being could become egoless. Like the patriarchs and the matriarchs were completely nullified before God. They were egoless. They were chariots 24-7. Every prophet on some small level also had that same experience of being completely nullified before God. Moshe, the ultimate prophet, who was even greater than the patriarchs, was he wasn't just a chariot to God, a tool of God he himself became unified with God. He was a prophet, the receiver of the Torah. God spoke through his throat. He spoke and it was God speaking through him. The Jews heard him speak and yet it was God speaking through him. This is the ultimate unification of a human being with God. A a human being can become absolutely one with God. That by being completely, entirely egoless, the human being becomes an expression of God. So that was the level of motion.
0: At Mount Sinai, Israel were privileged to experience a glimmer of this level of self-nullification, but they could not endure it. As our sages have said, quote, at every divine utterance, their souls took flight, end quote, and God resurrected them each time. This flight of their soul actually represents the self-nullification spoken of previously.
1: The Torah tells us that the first two commandments the Jewish people heard directly from God. But after each commandment, their soul expired from ecstasy. They couldn't handle it. It was too intense. After the sec- And then God resurrected them. And then they heard the second of the Ten Commandments. And again, they expired and God resurrected them. So much so that the Jewish people pleaded with Moshe, please, speak to God. We can't hear it from God directly. It's too powerful. It's too intense. We can't handle it. You speak to us. And they, the last of the eight commandments, the last eight commandments, they heard directly from Moshe. God spoke through Moshe's throat. So what does it mean that their soul expired? Their soul expires from ecstasy because they experience, they experience godliness. They reached the a state of self-nullification. They reached the a state of complete egolessness. And they were able to sense the godliness. And they were able to sense the reality of God, the unity of God, that there's no other reality but God. And it was so mind-blowing. It was such a mind-blowing experience that they simply died from ecstasy. They expired from ecstasy. Imagine if we were able to change how we viewed ourselves and we viewed the world around us. Like the famous Roach test, when you just switch perspectives. You look at something one way and then suddenly it hits you that it's completely, it's something entirely different. The famous picture of the... uh, the two profiles the two faces and it's really it's two it's, it's two cups or it's two prof- two profiles depending depending what you see so we see ourselves our egos our sense of self imagine if you were suddenly able to turn that around or suddenly you see that our very substance is godliness god is within us all around us everything is really godly god is reality and that's a mind-blowing re- realization if you truly Felt it and experienced it and realized it that God is within us and God is all around us, and there's no other reality, no other existence but God. That we're not an independent existence, we're not even a dependent existence, our whole being is nothing other than, than godliness. If you truly felt it and experienced it, it would blow your mind away. And that's exactly what the Jewish people experienced at Sinai. What happened at Sinai? God revealed his essence, he revealed his unity, he revealed that there was no other reality but God. The whole world was silenced, the heavens opened up. And they saw the reality of God. And they were blown away. And they just died from ecstasy, from pleasure. It was so ecstatic. That realization was so powerful, so intense, that their souls just just fled their bodies, flew right out of their bodies. They couldn't handle it. So experientially, we all experienced at Sinai, all of us, because all of our souls stood at Sinai. We all had that experience. What the patriarchs and the matriarchs experienced on a daily basis, What Moses experienced on a a daily basis, what the prophets experienced, occasionally, all of us experience at Simon, but we couldn't handle it. We're not equipped to handle it. We're not constituted. God didn't create us with the ability to be able to handle that reality. It's not by accident that we are egotistical and we have a healthy sense of egos and a healthy sense of self. We're simply not constituted to be the tzaddik. It's too much for us. We would just expire in ecstasy. The tzaddik is born with the soul of the tzaddik. The prophet is born with the potential to be a prophet. His soul is different. It's a different quality soul. And therefore, they're able to handle this experience without expiring but for us, it would just be too overwhelming. And the purpose is not to expire. The purpose is to stay in this world. That was the sin of Nadav and Aviyah, the two eldest sons of Aaron. They expired. They came too close. They entered into the Holy of Holies. And their souls just expired. They came too close to God. And like a spark, when it draws close to the flame, it just leaps up to the flame and is absorbed in the flame and it loses its identity. Their souls just leaped up, became absorbed within God. And just lost lost their identity. And they died. And that's not the purpose. God needs us human beings in this world. The Torah was given to human beings. But we all had a taste of it. Standing at Sinai. And it was important for us to have that experience. Why did God give us that experience if we couldn't handle it? Knowing that after two, twice we, we just couldn't handle it and and... What was the point? What was the purpose? Even temporarily to have that experience. Because the truth is that that left an imprint in each and every one of us. It impacted us. It changed us forever. Every one of us. Because we went through that experience. That gives us the strength to be able to do what we need to do to live in our world, in our environment, with our limitations, in a very egotistical world, with a healthy sense of ego, and yet to be able to have the strength to do the right thing, to overcome our egos and do the right thing, it's because we had that experience at Sunday of complete self-nullification. And that's why it's important, even presently, at least once in a while, every Jew has to totally go beyond his limitations. If all our lives, everything was always confined and limited, then it would be impossible to fulfill our mission. Once in a while, we have to have that Nodhvanavyu experience. We have to have that breaking out of the boundaries. That purim experience where you totally break out of your boundaries. You go beyond your limitations without any limit without any 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 limit. And that gives you the strength to be able to go back into your limitations and do the right thing. Otherwise, you're trapped, you're imprisoned within your limitations. It's like someone once said, if you want, you know, you dream, you may dream to reach the stars. Now, you may never reach the stars, but if you dream to reach the stars, at least they'll keep you out of the mud. But if you don't dream to reach the stars, then there's no way you're going to keep out of the mud. So yes, the level of complete self-nullification belongs to the realm of the tzaddik. It's not within our reality. But occasionally, we all have to experience that, or at least have a taste of it. That's why God gives us a Shabbat once a week. That's why we have a holiday three times a year. Yom Kippur, there are moments in our life when you have to experience that, you have to touch it, you have to taste it. And that taste is enough to give you that impression, is enough to help you negotiate your daily life and the challenges of your daily life. But if you never had that experience, something that takes you totally beyond your ego, totally beyond your frame of reference, your ordinary frame of reference, if you never had that that northern star to guide you, if you never had that dream, that hope, that aspiration, then there's no way we can fulfill our mission within our limited circumstances. That's why we had to have that experience. Even though we were completely nullified, we couldn't handle it. It was totally beyond our capacity. But it was, it was a healthy experience. It was a necessary experience. And that left an imprint on for us forever and ever. The first two commandments, I am God, you God, who took you out of Egypt, God imprinted that in each and every one of our souls. And it, it touched us to the very core of our being, so much so that we expired. We all died when we heard those words. It touched us to our very, every every fiber of our being, every bone in our body was impacted by that revelation, by that uh, intense experience. And we take it with us, and that gives us the strength to be able to carry out what we need to do while living healthily, a soul and a body, and living and operating and functioning in our frame of reference in this physical world.
0: Therefore. Because they were unable to live with this feeling of self-surrender before God, he commanded them immediately to erect for him a sanctuary in which would be the Holy of Holies, wherein his presence would dwell, i.e., there his unity would be revealed, as will be explained further. He's
1: saying that since the Jewish people, 99.9% of us could not handle this revelation experientially on a a constant basis but in order for us to have the benefit of this revelation God ordered us to build for him a temple a tabernacle see the patriarchs and the matriarchs didn't need a temple their home, their tent was a temple. Their whole life was a temple. God was with them 24-7. They were the chariots. God was riding on top of them 24-7. There were never a moment without God. Their whole life was God-centered. They felt it. They experienced it 24-7. Sarah's tent was miraculous. The candle lit throughout all seven days. It remained lit miraculously. The cloud, God's presence hovered over the tent. The food was blessed. The three mitzvot that a woman that's connected to a Jewish woman, kashrut, the food, lighting the Shabbat candle, bringing peace into the home, the light into the home, and the family purity the cloud. So the patriarchs and the matriarchs, they, their whole being was a temple. Their home was a temple. But the Jewish people were commanded to build a temple, a tabernacle to God. A special home, a special place for God. And this was even before they sinned with the golden calf. The Rebbe says here, immediately, therefore, you just read, because he commanded them immediately to erect for him a sanctuary. Because there are different opinions. There are three opinions, actually, when God commanded the Jewish people to build a sanctuary. One was that he commanded them after Yom Kippur after the sin of the golden calf and after God said that he had forgiven them on the Yom Kippur then the next day God told Moshe okay now tell them that I'm ready to move back in with them because after the sin of the golden calf God like separated from them he says now I'm ready to move back ready to reconcile so build a home so I can move back in with him.' that's when God commanded Moshe and that's when Moshe commanded the Jewish people and they immediately brought gifts and then Sukkot the 15th of Tishrei, the cloud of glory came back. Because when the Jews sinned, the cloud of glory parted, signaling God was separating from his bride right after the marriage. 40 days later, the marriage was headed for trouble, and God separated from his bride, the groom separated from the bride. He thought it was DOA, dead on arrival, this marriage was hopeless. And um, 120 days later, God told him, I'm going to forgive you. And he reconciled with the Jewish people. And he discovered even a deeper love. He gave him a second set of tablets. And he told him to build his home. And he moved back in with them. The clouds of glory came back on Sukkot. And that's why we build the Sukkot on the 15th day of Sukkot. One of the reasons, even though we're commemorating the clouds of glory that shielded the Jewish people when they left Egypt, which was in the spring. Why are we making the sukkah in the fall? When, when the miracle of Sukkot happened in the spring, it's not—it doesn't fit. One of the reasons is because that's when the cloud of glory returned to the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf. That's one opinion. That's what says. Another opinion is that God commanded Moshe before the Jewish people sinned. When Moshe was at Sinai, God commanded and told the Jewish people to build a tabernacle, and I will dwell in it. Nachmanidi's opinion, but Moshe did not deliver the message, he didn't have a chance of delivering the message, till after Yom Kippur. And the third opinion, according to the Zohar, God commanded Moshe to build a tabernacle before the sin of the golden calf, and Moshe delivered this commandment to the Jewish people as well before the sin of the golden calf. So according to these two opinions, God told Moshe immediately to build a tabernacle. So this has nothing to do with the sin of the golden calf Because even without the sin of the golden calf The Jewish people couldn't handle it At Sinai they were perfect They just couldn't handle it They died, they expired They became completely nullified Completely egoless When you expire you become completely egoless So they became completely egoless That's the state of That's the level of holiness they achieved They they became completely egoless That's the ideal state but not, not by dying the ideal state is to be egoist and be alive, be very well alive but they were not the patriarchs they were not the matriarchs they were not prophets they couldn't handle it this level of complete self-nullification of complete egolessness therefore God commanded them build for me a tabernacle and there I will dwell within this tabernacle what do you mean I will dwell within this tabernacle? are you limiting God, straightjacketing God to a piece of real estate? God has found in this and this address send your mail to God which we do by the way we send all our mail to God the Temple Mount all our prayers wherever a Jew prays anywhere in the world he physically faces Israel physically faces Jerusalem physically if you're in Jerusalem you physically face the Temple Mount and if you're in the Temple Mount you physically face the Holy of Holies the Temple all our prayers go to heaven through the Temple so this is our address by the way, when the Arabs pray, they turn their backside to Jerusalem. They, they pray towards Mecca. Because Jerusalem is not even mentioned once in the Quran. Jerusalem means nothing to them. Until the Jews um, became important to us. Before 1967, no one even paid attention to the Temple Mount. It was completely neglected. It was only after 67, now suddenly they discovered discovered Jerusalem as the third holiest city in Islam. It never was and never is but the Jewish people physically face wherever they are in the world physically face Jerusalem this is our capital this is our center it's mentioned close to a thousand times in our Bible has no connection the Arabs have zero connection to Jerusalem and this is the Jewish eternal capital of the Jewish people so what does it mean that God has an address physical address that you're sending all your prayers to God God is everywhere And what that means is that God's presence is felt. When you say the Shekhinah's presence, it means you can feel godliness. You can sense His presence. Of course, God is everywhere. But this world is called, in Hebrew, olam. Olam also means, in Hebrew, comes from the root word, hellen. It's hidden. Godliness is hidden. It's concealed. You don't sense godliness. But in the temple, when the Shekhinah's presence means you can feel. There's a presence. You can feel His presence. When you walk down Park Avenue, you don't feel God's presence. Not yet. But when you go into a miniature temple, you walk into a synagogue, you feel a certain sense of godliness. When you walk into the temple, you saw the ten miracles. You saw the—you felt godliness. You sensed godliness. So God says, build for me a home and I will dwell in it. The Shechidna is present. You can sense the divine presence. You can feel the divine presence. When you're standing at the wall, Right? Everyone here has had, has had that experience. You experience the Divine Presence. There's a holiness, there's a sense, a sense of connection, a sense of eternity. So God says, build for me a home, and I will be present. There. When you sense God's presence, when you sense the unity of God, that there's no other reality but God, you sense the Holiness. The holiness of God. You have a sense of eternity. You have a sense of of the reality that God is present in this world. But God is not some otherworldly reality. God is reality. It's our sense of reality which is so illusory almost, which is so unreal. When you stood in the temple, you sensed godliness. That felt so natural. That felt real. You saw that the world is alive. The world is godly. The world... The world is is truly divine. There is no other reality but God. You felt that eternity. And you felt that that was a reality. When a Jew came to the temple, godliness was natural. Anything that was ungodly, ego, ungodliness, felt completely unnatural. Versus where we are here and now. Nature seems to be very natural to us. Godliness seems to be so abstract, otherworldly, so, so, seems so unnatural to us. We can barely relate to it. That's a distortion. That's why this world is called Olam. It's hell-lame. Godliness is hidden and concealed. But in the temple, you sense the truth of Godliness. You felt the reality. When you saw the miracles happening on a, on a natural, 10 miracles, that was natural. That felt natural. But that was reality. You felt it. it Nothing was the way it appears to be. This world is really alive, it's divine, it's And that's what you sense in the temple. Okay, continue.
0: The Alter Rebbe points out below that when one specific place is singled out as an abode for God's presence, despite the fact that, quote, his glory fills the entire earth, end quote, the uniqueness of this site lies in the revelation of godliness which occurs there. In contrast to the rest of the world, where God's unity as the sole existing being stands concealed, in, quote, the abode of God's presence, end quote, it is clearly apparent, quote, that there is naught besides him, end quote. We thus see that the revelation of God's unity, which the Jewish people experienced at Mount Sinai, but which they could not endure, was continued by means of the sanctuary.
1: So the sanctuary was a way of, like, battling that experience and, and having it on a, on a continuous basis. So the temple, which was the focal point of the Jewish people, the center of the Jewish people, three times a year a Jew was obligated to go to the temple. And whenever he had to bring a sacrifice, he had to go to the temple. And the temple was the source of prophecy, and the temple was the seat of the Jewish Supreme Court, and the temple was the nerve center of the Jewish people. So when a Jew went to the temple you absorbed and you felt you had that experience, that experience that we had at Sinai, that we couldn't handle. But now God gave us a way that we can we can have that experience, we can taste that experience, we can experience it when we went to the temple.
0: Okay. Ever since the temple was destroyed, the, quote, four cubits of the halacha end quote, i.e., the Torah study, is the only sanctuary and abode which the Holy One, blessed be He, has in His world, i.e., Torah is the only abode for the revelation of His unity. For the halachot set out before us are the actual embodiment of God's will and wisdom, which are one with God. The halachic ruling represents the divine will, and what underlies it is divine wisdom. Hence, in the Torah, God's unity stands revealed.
1: The Talmud says that today we don't have a temple, uh, tragically, unfortunately, we're now in the time in the, mor- in the mourning period, the national mourning period for the Jewish people, the three weeks when we're mourning the destruction of the temple. All we have today is the four cubits of halacha, when a Jew studies Torah, and specifically when you study the halacha of Torah, which is the will of God, how to behave and how to act, then you have the Divine Presence. Because when it comes to Torah, there's no concealment, there's no hiding. Torah is God's will. And God's will and His wisdom are one with God. So within Torah, you have the revelation of the unity of God, the will of God. Because from the Torah, is really God's perspective from the inside out. It's the way God looks at this world, the way God perceives and experiences the world. How does God perceive the world? How does God experience the world? that all there is is God. There is no other reality but God. That is reflected in Torah. The only thing that we have that reflects it today is Torah. We don't have anything else because everything else is part of the world, is part of the frame of reference of the world. And God created the world by hiding Himself, by concealing Himself. So our whole frame of reference really conceals Godliness We don't have that sense of the unity of God. The only thing that we have that reflects that sense of the unity of God, the reality of God, there's no other reality but God, is the Torah. Whenever you study Torah, you're really touching and connecting, and your mind is becoming unified and one, you're absorbing the truth of God, the reality of God, and God's point of view, that there's no other reality but God. So you have that you, know, you have that presence, that felt presence, that felt sense, that presence of God, the holiness of God's unity, of God's reality. And although we don't experience it experientially, because we don't have the same experience that we had at Sinai, right? We had at Sinai, God spoke to us, we, we expired in ecstasy. No one is expiring here from ecstasy. <laughs> we may be expiring from drowsiness, but no, no one's expiring from ecstasy. We were studying God's Torah. the the Torah says when a Jew studies Torah you have to imagine that you're receiving the Torah with thunder and lightning you have to reimagine Sinai because the truth is every time you're studying Torah it's really the same Torah you're getting the same Torah with the same revelation with the thunder and the lightning the heavens are opening but we don't hear the thunder we don't see the lightning and um, but it doesn't change the reality the truth is maybe it's a blessing that we don't hear the thunder and see the lightning because if we were to hear the thunder and hear the lightning we would all expire once again so again the whole thing would be counterproductive so maybe it's a blessing we're able to study Torah and yet it's not an earth-shattering experience for us but the truth is nevertheless that it is an earth-shattering experience because when you're studying Torah you are experiencing the unity of God that's God's chinnah God's presence you feel God's presence And God's presence is revealed to us in the most intimate way because our minds become one with the mind of God. We internalize, we absorb it, we understand the Torah. And our mind, the finite mind, becomes one with the infinite mind of God. And we're touching the reality of God, the unity of God. Because the Torah is the only thing that we have that reflects that truth, that unity of God, the reality that there's no other reality but God. Because the Torah is really God's reality. You're studying Torah, you're studying God. You're studying God Himself. You have God Himself. And the the whole perspective of the Torah is really that there's no other reality but God. Because don't forget, the Torah is really God's blueprint for, for reality. So everything that exists in this world is really just to reflect the concept in the Torah. The only reason that it exists, the only reason anything exists in this world is just to reflect the concept in the Torah. Even the things that the Torah prohibits is also being created through the Torah. The Torah is creating something that it prohibits in order that we should reject it. So everything is really just here. It's almost like a prop. Everything that exists is just a prop to explain a concept in the Torah, to reveal a concept in the Torah. There is nothing that exists in this world that doesn't originate within the Torah. So we have it all wrong. Without the Torah, we look at the world as reality. And we look at the Torah as a document, a constitution. A book of rules and laws, a way of life. You have the American Constitution, you have the Jewish Constitution. But that's so far from the truth. That's not what the Torah is. It's not that first you have a reality and then you have, okay, how are we going to live our life? How are we going to organize ourselves? So we have a Torah, a way of life. The Torah changes that whole perspective because the Torah takes us from the inside out and you realize there is no other reality. All there is is God. Why does a person have 248 limbs in his body? You know why? Because there are 248 mitzvahs. So God created a limb to fulfill the mitzvah. Why do you have a hand? Why is there Wall Street? Why do you have, do you have a Wall Street Journal? A marketplace. Because it says in the Torah you should give tzedakah. So therefore, God created the monetary system and He created a world of finance and business and commerce. So everything that exists in the world is merely an implement for the Torah. So we have it all wrong. And that's what the Jewish people felt and experienced at at Mount Sinai. God revealed to them that there is no other reality but God. All there is is God. Everything that exists in this world is just a parable for godliness. Everything speaks of God. There is no other reality. Everything that exists is just a projection of God. From the marketplace, anything, any human experience is all there just to project, just to implement the Torah. The Torah precedes the world. The Torah, the world was created through the Torah. So therefore, and therefore the Torah covers every aspect of the world. There isn't a single aspect of existence, of reality, from human relations, from business, from, from social relations, government. There isn't a single aspect in this world that the Torah doesn't deal with or cover. And it can't be otherwise, because if it exists, it originates from the Torah. The only reason it exists is because God had a vision, and the vision is His Torah. That's His will, that's His wisdom, that's His vision. And in order to implement that vision, He created the world. So when you're studying Torah, you have the whole world in your hand. The whole world is just a reflection, an implementation, a parable of, of the Torah, of the divine. There's nothing else. So the only thing that reflects that truth is the Torah. There is nothing else in our existence that reflects that truth and that reality. So when you study Torah, any part of the Torah, especially the laws of the Torah, you're studying the divine will and wisdom. You're partaking in that truth. You're participating in that truth, that there is no other reality but God and everything that exists is just a reflection of that truth of that reality there's nothing else in existence that gives us offers us such a such a gift such an uh, opportunity such an experience because everything else takes its existence for granted and God and Godliness is something of the worldly is something abstract the Torah reverses it 180 degrees it's just the opposite everything originates within God there's nothing but God and everything that exists is just here to highlight another point of the Torah, to implement another aspect of the Torah, another aspect of the divine vision, of the divine will and wisdom. There's nothing else. That's all that exists. That's what the Jewish people experienced at Sinai. And it, it, it blew them away. They expired from ecstasy. Once you have that realization that everything in the world is just a projection of the divine, it changes your whole perspective of reality. It changes your whole perspective of God. God is not some otherworldly, abstract, crystal energy, higher levels of consciousness. God is reality. There is no other reality. It's enough to to blow you away. Now we study Torah, and it doesn't blow us away. But the truth remains, nevertheless. When you're studying Torah, you're partaking, you're touching the Divine. You're partaking in this Divine Truth, in this Divine Reality. The Shechina, God's Presence becomes felt and becomes real in this world. You're bringing God's presence into this world every time you study Torah. You're like creating a miniature temple in your mind and in your life.
0: Therefore, after one meditates deeply, according to his ability, on the subject of this above-mentioned self-nullification, let him reflect in his heart as follows. Quote, The capacity of my intelligence and of my soul's root is too limited to constitute a chariot and an abode for God's unity in perfect truth. For my thought cannot grasp or apprehend his unity at all with any degree of comprehension in the world, not an iota, in fact, of that which was grasped by the patriarchs and prophets, who were God's chariot and abode by virtue of their awareness of God's unity as they grasped it.
1: So a person has to know, you have to know yourself, know thyself, both your strengths and your limitations. A person has to have an honest assessment of himself. Don't overreach, don't try to be something that you're not, because you're setting yourself up for failure. You feel disappointed. You know, no one expects us. As Rabbi Zusha of Anupole once said, the great Hasidic Master, when I come to heaven after 120 years, I'm not worried if they're going to ask me why you weren't like Abraham. Why should I be like Abraham? God didn't create me to be like Abraham. But I am worried if they're going to ask me why you weren't like Rabbi Zusha, why you weren't like yourself, the capacities that God gave you. So a person has to know your strengths, all your positive qualities that you have, which are unique. No one else has, has them. So each and every one of us has to contribute something unique. But on the other hand, we also have to know our limitations. Don't aspire. Don't try to be something that you can't be. And don't set yourself up for failure. Don't be disappointed if you don't end up being like, like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. If you're not completely nullified and completely egoless and completely godly, we're not qualified for that. Look what happened with the Jewish people at Sinai. They expired. They couldn't handle it. So knowing your limitations. But on the other hand, how can I achieve? How can I achieve the same result? even though I can't experience it personally or experience it experientially, yet he's he's, going to say that you could have the same result. You could live like the patriarchs. You could live like the matriarchs. You could be like a chariot that's completely nullified before God. You can live your life accordingly. Even though you can't have the same experience that they have, but you can live the same, you can behave the same way. You can live your life accordingly. You can live a life where godliness, the unity of God, permeates your entire life. Where you're so connected to God that it becomes part of the very fabric of your life, of your daily life. And it becomes part of your whole life. It's not something that's compartmentalized, not religion. But you can make God a part of your life, your entire life, your whole life, 24-7, just like the Patriarchs in the Matrix. And that is the purpose of the Torah. The purpose of the Torah is that a Jew should live. It's a way of life. Torah is not religion. It's not compartmentalized. Torah is a way of life. A Jew doesn't only live on Shabbos. Just like there's a way a Jew lives on Shabbat, there's a way a Jew lives on Sunday, and there's a way a Jew lives on Monday, and there's a way a Jew lives on Tuesday. There's a way a Jew lives in business. God is part of our lives 24-7. It affects how we eat. It affects every aspect of our existence. There's not a single aspect in our life affected by Torah so effectively you're living the same type of life as the patriarchs and the matriarchs and that's why God gave us a Torah because God saw that we can't live in that level we're not the patriarchs we're not the matriarchs that every one of us our home should be a temple a miniature temple our life should be a miniature temple we're not on that level consciously we're not on that level subconsciously we all have that spark within us we all have that divine spark within us But unconsciously we're not on that level and we can't be on that level. We're not constituted to live on that level. So therefore God gave us a Torah. By living a Torah life, by living the mitzvot of the Torah, the divine mitzvot of the Torah, God is giving us the opportunity to live this lifestyle, to live a life where every aspect of our life becomes connected with this theme, where our lives become unified. Instead of most of our lives are fragmented, if you start out from the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you go to sleep, if you start listing the many things you do in your life, it's completely fragmented. One has nothing to do with the other. The cup of orange juice you have in the morning, and the newspaper you read, and then your, your business and your career, and then your lunch, and then your entertainment, and then your. It's like you do a thousand things throughout the day. What does one have to do with the other? Nothing. It's a completely compartmentalized, fragmented type of life. He may be very religious. He may be very spiritual. What does it have to do with anything? Nothing. Compartmentalize. I have music in my life and I have religion and I have spirituality and I have meditation. So your life is just a diverse mixture of multitude of things that have no connection. Not for a Jew. That's religion, spirituality, mysticism, not Judaism. The foundation of Judaism is... The unity of Hashem. Shema Yisrael Hashem Melokeinu Hashem Echad. The unity of Hashem means there's only one reality. There's one theme to our lives. There's one theme that connects every aspect of our life in the moment you're born, even before you're born. Your mother goes to the mikvah, even before you're conceived. You're ready to start out with a mitzvah. Until you pass away, until afterwards. How you leave this world, etc. And even beyond... There's one theme that connects every aspect of your life, 24-7. Even though you're doing so many diverse things from business and career and personal and entertainment and collective and communal and social and relationships and what does one have to do with the other, material things and spiritual things, yet for a Jew there's only one theme, there's only one reality. If there's no other reality than God, then everything in your life has to reflect that truth. Not only are you studying a Torah and you're doing a mitzvah when you're doing something holy and spiritual, and you're going about your daily lives. There isn't a single aspect in your life that's not permeated with that single unifying theme. That there's no other reality but God. Just like the patriarchs and the matriarchs. The patriarchs and the matriarchs had one theme in their lives. They were a chariot to God, God was riding them 24 7. Whatever they did was permeated with that single truth that there's no other reality but God. Our lives also reflect that truth. Although we can't, we're not on the level of the patriarchs. As he says, not even by far, not even one iota. We couldn't even handle one iota of that experience. It would just be too intense for us. We would expire in ecstasy. But nevertheless, practically, we can lead that type of life. Where there's one theme that unifies every aspect of our life. Just like in a good novel, in a good book, in a book. You can have many different characters and many different events and episodes. But there's one theme that pulls it all together. It's our life also. Our life is many, many different parts. But there's a theme to our lives. And that theme is the unity of God. There is no other reality but God. And that permeates whatever we do. How do we have that sense of Godliness 24-7? Going about our daily lives. That's the gift of the Torah. That's how the Torah reflects the unity of God. This truth, this reality, that there's no other reality but God. The Torah is a total way of life. A complete way of life. 24-7. And when a Jew lives by the Torah, by these divine mitzvot, your whole life is unified. It affects what you eat. It affects how you do business. It affects, there isn't a single aspect in your life that the Torah doesn't affect. Because the Torah reflects that truth. And by learning Torah and by doing the mitzvot, your life becomes unified. Just like the patriarchs and the matriarchs. So God is giving us a practical program. How to live the unity of God in the most practical way possible. us practical human beings and the mitzvot are all doable they're practical things, taking a match and lighting a candle, you can do it sticking your hand into your pocket and taking a penny and and giving it to, to tzedakah, you can do it taking the tefillin and wrapping it all the six, eating the matzah doing a favor to someone else, all of the mitzvot are all practical and doable things so God is giving us a practical program How to live this life consistently 24-7 And he's going to explain Although we don't live it 24-7 We don't feel it 24-7 But by doing the mitzvot It becomes It connects every aspect of our life With a mitzvah Because every part of our life Becomes connected to a mitzvah He's going to give the example of tzedakah So when you're giving tzedakah That money that you're giving away Reflects a huge chunk of your life because it reflects all the hours that you're putting into your business, into your career, and all the business meetings that you had to sit through, and all the trips and the traveling you had to do in order to make that money. And then when you take, when you take that money, that portion, not, you don't have to give all your money away, but you give that portion of that hard-earned money and you give it away to tzedakah, you're connecting that chunk of your life, that portion of your life, you're connecting it with Hashem, with the Divine. So the mitzvot are ways of connecting every aspect of your life from your business which eats away most of your time. A huge part of your life. But everything becomes connected with the divine. Everything becomes connected with God. That's the way of the Torah and the mitzvot. That's the Jewish way. That's the tremendous gift that God gave us. By giving us the Torah, and giving us the mitzvot, by enabling us to build a sanctuary, a temple, a tabernacle, by being able to draw down God's presence in our lives in the most
0: practical way, okay? This being so, I will make him a sanctuary and an abode by studying Torah at fixed times by day and by night, to the extent of my free time, as stipulated by the law governing each individual situation set forth in the laws of Torah study. As our sages say, even one chapter in the morning and one at night, Suffice for one who can manage no more, for him to be regarded as engaging in Torah study day and night. Therefore, by fulfilling this minimal quota, I, too, will become an abode for godliness. Even though you don't have the ability
1: to study Torah day and night, but if you fulfill the obligation, every Jew is obligated to study Torah in the morning and at night. And for one person, it means studying 24-7. A person who's not engaged in business, and a person who has free time, and a person who's gifted, and who has the ability to study Torah, he has to study Torah 24-7. But a person who's engaged, who's, who's busy, who's occupied, the person doesn't have the capacity to study Torah 24-7. If he reads the Shema in the morning, which is a verse from the Torah, and he reads the Shema in the evening, he fulfills the mitzvah studying Torah, and he fulfills his obligation. But as long as you fulfill your quota, your set time, in the morning and at night, so then you are connected. That's, that's the way you become connected 24 hours, because you're connecting your entire morning, your entire day, and you're connecting your entire evening, your entire night by, by, with God by studying Torah, by studying your allotted quota for, for Torah, whatever it is.
0: Thereby his heart shall rejoice, he shall be glad and offer joyous thanks for his fortune in meriting to be a host to the Almighty through his study of Torah, which causes him to be a sanctuary for God twice each day, according to the extent of his available time and according to the capacity which God has granted him.
1: When a person realizes how fortunate is our portion, that God allowed us to experience, to touch the divine, to experience the unity of God by living a godly life, by reflecting that unity by something practical by studying Torah a little Torah in the morning a little Torah at night God enabled us gave us the opportunity threw us a rope gave us the opportunity to connect to the divine that's why the mitzvah are compared to like a rope when you can't reach the roof this, the, so what do you do the one on top throws you a rope by you tugging your end of the rope you're able to elicit a response in the roof you're able, the bell, you're able to make the bell ring so God threw us a rope we, we're not on the level that we can be on the roof on the ceiling so God through us a rope by us tugging on the roof in this world in this physical world we're able to touch the divine so we're able to live a life that reflects the unity of God this gives us tremendous joy if we can't experience it experientially consciously we can't consciously feel the unity of God and feel reach a state of egolessness but at least we can live A life that reflects that true state, that reality, that truth. So every time you study Torah, you set aside time and you make it a set part of your life. You're going to study Torah twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, and that becomes part of your daily life. And if a day goes by and you don't study Torah, you feel like uh, a part of your life is missing. It's it's not, not just a question of a few minutes that you study Torah. It's not quantity, it's quality. You know, you can do something for a few minutes, but that's the highlight of your day. That's what you look forward to all day. You could do something all day and yet it's boring. It's not, you have no interest. You're doing it. You're forced to do it. You're disciplined. You do it. But that's not, that's not what you look forward to. That's just the means to an end. While those few moments a day, that, those are your treasured moments. That's the highlight. That's the end. Everything else is just the means to an end. So yes, you may be only studying Torah a few minutes in the morning and a few minutes at night. But if you look forward, if they're set in your soul, and you look forward to these few minutes and if a day goes by and you don't study Torah you feel empty, hollow, shallow superficial then that, that becomes the highlight of the day that's your joy that gives you tremendous joy it's not a burden oh, never. Okay, what's my obligation I have to study a little Torah <laughs> what's God going to think of next but it's an opportunity it's a tremendous joy that God is giving us the opportunity to study Torah connect with the divine, to touch the divine to reflect in our personal lives in our real lives to reflect the truth that there's no other reality but God, to become part of that truth and to live that truth and to participate in that truth What what a divine gift then you do it joyfully and you eagerly and you can't wait to do it so then even if it's only a moment but that moment is the highlight of your day so that's how a person could reach the level of joy to serve God with joy as he explained earlier, that's the essential thing for a Jew is to worship God with joy. The only way we can go through life and achieve what we have to achieve, accomplish what we have to accomplish, and be able to overcome all the challenges and the difficulties and the limitations from within and from without, imaginary or real, is only when you approach life with a sense of joy. Joie de vivre, right? With a sense of a joyful approach to life. When you feel good and you're joyful and you're excited and you're enthusiastic. But if you're you know, if you lose that energy, then you don't have the strength. Then it's impossible. You won't have the strength, you won't have what it takes to be able to do the right thing. You have to be constantly alert and sharp and quick and with it. And that all depends on joy. But realizing that God gave us the opportunities, that the mitzvot are actually a tremendous opportunity to live this life a life of with hashem's presence then you approach it joyfully and you eagerly and you look forward to being being able to study torah every day a little in the morning a little
0: at night if god grants him a greater abundance of time for torah study then quote he whose hands are pure will increase his effort end quote i.e he should resolve that as more time becomes available to him he will devote it to Torah study. Moreover, God reckons a good intention as an actual deed. Therefore, even while his time for Torah study is limited to a small part of the day and night, he is regarded as if he had studied the entire day, since he would have devoted all his time to Torah study had it been available. By virtue of his good intention, he thus is, in a sense, an abode for godliness, not only during the time actually spent in Torah study, but also throughout the day. You know, if you
1: had the opportunity to study Torah all day, you would rather study Torah all day. If you had the means and you had the opportunity. But since, according to Torah, you have to earn a living and you have to work, so you're obligated to take care of business. But you would rather, you would much rather, if you had the ability, let's say you won the lottery and you didn't have to work, or if God gave you and suddenly you struck rich, you became very rich, if you had the opportunity to to devote more time to to studying Torah. There's a a phenomenon actually, many business people are are very wealthy and they actually take up more time to study Torah, because they have the means and they have the opportunity. And they can delegate different things in their business so if, so if it was up to you if you had the means you would rather study Torah all day that's where your heart is at But you have no choice so most of your time is spent in your business, in your career it says God considers a good thought a good intention as if, as if you fulfilled it so since that's your intention yes, you're only studying a few minutes a day but if those few minutes are truly the highlight of your day, and you eagerly look forward to those few minutes, what, do, what does that tell you? If you really had the time, you would spend all day doing it. If it's, if it's genuine. If, if it's for real, it really it is the highlight of your day, and you genuinely look forward to those few minutes. And that makes your day for you. If you study Torah. What would happen the moment you have some free time? You would immediately use that opportunity to study more Torah. And the proof is in the pudding. You have a day off, or it's a vacation, or it's a holiday. You, you you can't wait. You have time on Shabbat and a holiday, or a regular. You have time to spend to spend uh, to spend more time in study. But you have no choice. So most of your day, most of your time, ends up being pursuing your career or your business. So therefore, what does that tell you? Where's your heart at? You know, B'alshemta says if you want to know where a person is at, you have to look at where a person's desire is. You can have a person who's sitting in the classroom but the, the, the child is always looking outside the classroom. He's sitting in the classroom but his mind is elsewhere. So he's not in the classroom. He's, he's, his mind is all over the place except in the classroom. You can have a person who's standing outside the classroom but he's listening and he, he's looking in. Where is his heart at? His heart is inside. So he's technically outside but his heart is inside. So it's not where you are externally. It's where your heart is at. So you can have a person who technically is in but he's out. He's not here. He's not present. He's elsewhere. You can have a person who technically is elsewhere, but his heart is there. Where's his desire? Where's his heart? So yes, technically he's in business. Most of his time is in business. He only has time for a few minutes in the morning and a few minutes at night to study Torah. But where's his heart at? Where's his interest? Where's his will? Studying Torah. So therefore, that's where he really is at. So it's as if he's studying Torah all day. So he has the benefit then even though practically he's not studying Torah all day but he has the benefit as if he were studying Torah all day and therefore he has that that unity that level of unity as if he was studying Torah all day had he had the opportunity to study Torah all day he would be constantly unified within God so by his heart being in the right place and his heart being there and his desire God considers as if he's studying Torah all day so he's constantly unified within God although practically it's only, it's only a few moments a day.
0: Okay? Even during the remainder of the day when he is engaged in business, he will be an abode for God by giving charity out of the proceeds of his labor. It's the same concept that, that when a person takes from his hard-earned money
1: and he gives it to tzedakah, he gives it to charity, it's not just the amount of money that you're giving to charity. By giving that tzedakah, you're connecting every cent that you earned becomes connected with God. Because it's all that money that enabled you to give the, the 10% that you're obligated or the 20% which is ideal, or if you want sometimes even more, to give to tzedakah. So it's all that money, every cent that enabled you to be able to give this tzedakah. And it's all everything that went into earning that money that enabled you to be able to give tzedakah. So by you giving tzedakah, you're connecting everything that went into your business, all those hours and all that effort and everything that went into the business, now becomes connected with this mitzvah, becomes connected with God. It's the same idea that he just discussed, that although you're only studying Torah a few moments a day, but by studying Torah those few moments you're connecting the entire day. The entire day becomes connected as well as the entire evening, because if it was up to you, you would study all day and all night, if you had the time and opportunity therefore that's where your heart is so therefore it's as if you're studying torah all day so therefore every moment of your day becomes connected with god so to hear every every cent that you earned and everything that went into earning that money now becomes connected with god okay top of 447.
0: charity is one of god's attributes which we are enjoined to emulate as our sages say quote as he is compassionate so must you be end quote and as it is written in Tikune Zohar, quote, Kindness is the right arm of God, end quote, so to speak, and therefore human kindness constitutes an abode for the divine attribute of kindness. Even though one distributes as charity no more than one fifth of his earnings, the maximum requirement for charity, how then is he an abode for godliness while he is engaged in earning the other four fifths? Yet that fifth elevates with it all the other four parts to God, so that they too become an abode for him. In a well-known statement, our sages have declared that the mitzvah of charity is equivalent to offering all the sacrifices. Now, in the case of sacrifices, all living creatures were elevated to God through the offering of one animal, all plants through the meal offering, which consisted merely of one-tenth of a measure of fine meal mixed with oil, and so on. Similarly, all of one's earnings are elevated when he gives one-fifth to charity. Apart from this, as is explained below, all that one has eaten and drunk and generally enjoyed for his bodily health from the other four-fifths of his earnings is elevated toward God during his Torah study and prayer. Thus, even the time spent on earning those profits, which he does not distribute in charity, also becomes an abode for godliness through Torah study and prayer.
1: The Torah is a way to connect every aspect of your being, every waking moment, every aspect of your experience to connect it with God. By giving tzedakah, you're connecting all of your business. By using the energy that you get from eating, so the act of eating and everything that goes into it that gives you the energy to study Torah and to pray becomes elevated to God. So every human experience now has a way to become connected with God through, st- through studying Torah and doing mitzvah. So this is a way for us to participate in the unity of God, in the reality that there's no other reality but God. By connecting every aspect of our being, every aspect of our existence, and unifying it with this theme. There's a unified theme that every part of our existence becomes connected with the Divine. And that's the Jewish way of life. To be continued, we'll conclude this chapter and start a new chapter next week.